So um, when this period starts, I, I first made contact with the FWBO in um, September, October 1973. And if I could just ask Andrew to stand up <coughs> and come and stand by me. So he's about the same, he's about the same height as me, isn't he? So this is sort of what I look like. <laughs> But I had a big beard, no yeah. chin, yeah. and uh, slightly longer hair. Yeah. Well, much longer yeah. hair. Longer hair. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I was slender, like this, and um, um, a young man, pretty much the same age as, uh, as Andrew. So, thank you, Andrew. <laughs> Just to... Unfortunately, um, I suppose in some ways, my... Um, um, just a little bit of um, background to myself. At, uh, at this age, unlike Andrew, I was actually already married. I'd got married when I was 21. And during this period that we're, we're looking at, in some ways, I, I think I was a sort of a bit of a dark horse. I was had a, had a, a wife, and in 1973, actually had a first um, daughter born. So I was a little bit different from this bunch of people that you uh, saw in the film. Although most of those people in the film are my sort of contemporaries. So I sort of grown up and matured in the, um, in the order with, with a lot of those people. Vajradhaka, Subhuti, um, Lokamitra, Nagabodhi, Mangala, and um, several Dharmadina, several others. <coughs> and I had a lot of contact with those people when I was, um, first came into, into the order. I happened to marry someone called Jane Goody, who was the brother, um, sorry, the sister of um, um, Jeremy Goody, who at the time um, uh, when the film starts was, wasn't an order member, but in 1973 he got ordained as Lokamitra. So Lokamitra was my brother-in-law, and it was a bit like I had family and friends who were in the um, FWBO. And I got dragged along to the, that centre, Pundarika. It wasn't Pundarika at the time, but it was the Buddhist Archway Centre, North London. Um, I got dragged along there by Jeremy Goody, Lokamitra, and before he was ordained, and he said, you must come and meet Bunty. And I didn't know who Bunty was. Um, <laughs> later on, I discovered it was Banty, not Bunty, and uh, I thought it was just his name. And... Uh, <coughs> And I went along to the centre. It was pretty much like those photographs with the cat on the couch, the tea bar, people milling around, a little bookshop. In some ways, it's quite reminiscent of most Buddhist centres. They seem to have followed a similar pattern. And even here in the Manchester Buddhist Centre, we've just got a more sophisticated and larger um, version of um, what was you know, there in that centre. And sometimes in the winter, when, it, when I come into this building, it is reminiscent of the cold, damp um, shrine room of um, the Archway Centre. So it's, you know, some things don't change so quickly. <laughs> um, <coughs> so what to say about that period? I uh, just, um, so I, I got involved in uh, late 1973 when Banti was giving that series of lectures called The Tantric Path. So I, I came into a series of incredibly esoteric teachings of um, Buddhism. I don't think really anyone understood them. 
um, so I didn't feel alone. But it was one of those sort of feelings where you were just there listening to something, and something was going in and it was having an effect on you, and uh, you just sort of got drawn in. <coughs> and before I knew um, really where I was, I, in, I was in, uh, moved to Cambridge um, in... Uh, I got involved. I must have got involved in the movement actually in '72, and in '73 I uh, moved to Cambridge, and my daughter was born shortly afterwards. And towards the end of that year, David Mitra, who was one of those characters in the photographs, he um, he became a good friend of mine, and uh, he said to me, "Why don't you get ordained?" So I said, "Oh, you know, I've more or less decided to, but I don't think I'm ready yet, and so I think I'll ask when I feel ready." So he said, no, no, you should just do it now, you know, don't, don't wait. So, <coughs> so, uh, um, <laughs> um, so this, this was uh, after a period, just to get things in context. When I got involved in the movement, Banty was giving a series of lectures and he taught me to meditate. Then after about six weeks or eight weeks, he left, he went to Cornwall, he went to live in Cornwall. And I didn't see him again until about July the following year in 1973 when he happened to come up to Cambridge where I had just moved and there was the first ever men's uh, retreat taking place in um, Lokomitra's father's house in Cambridge and I, um, one of my roles in life in my first meetings with Banty was to, to be his driver um, I was one of the few friends in those days who had a car I lived this double life in the day I was an engineer and in the evenings I was a bit of a hippie and uh, so, but I, I had enough money to own a car, and I used to drive him home after classes. And then he disappeared to Cornwall, and then he came back, and then I was driving around Cambridge a bit, and he disappeared again. And he moved up to Norfolk, and in um, January, straight after that Bodhicharya Avatar retreat, David Mitra was so inspired. His his inspiration must have set me alight because I suddenly found myself meeting Banty and saying, do you know I've come to see you about Banty? And he said, no. I said, can you guess? He said, do oh, I think so? <laughs> <laughs> so I said, well, I want to get all day. And he said, oh, totally good. So he uh, told me about a new system called the Mitra system, and I became the first Mitra. Um, you have to get, become a Mitra to get all day. And six months later, I got all day, so it's quite a simple process. And like Dharma Dinner, I had no idea what it was I was really letting myself in for. But to sort of share something um, with you of, of that time, it was, um, I guess a lot of people were operating much more on a sort of a heart connection rather than a clear rational level. Maybe it was the drugs, um, was a, you know, um, muddling their thinking. But it wasn't really like that. It was, there was this sort of strong sang feeling of sangha that you were with your friends and uh, sort of family in a way. And it's easy to say, okay, well, it was just like a group um, pressure. You know, it was just like a cult. All these people were getting ordained, so the thing to do was to get ordained yourself. It certainly didn't feel like that. And even thinking back, you know, to that time, which is like four, nearly 40 years ago, um, it, it certainly didn't feel like that. It suddenly it felt as though um, things just were following a natural course. And it was as though um, later... At Shortly after I was all done, I had this sort of feeling as though I knew it, I knew new people much, much longer than this lifetime. 
So it was a bit like coming back into contact with a group of people that you somehow um, could just be with. Um, anyway, that was sort of on, on a personal level, and things for me didn't change an awful lot. I was a little bit of probably a boring character. Um, I wasn't very uh, radical, um, certainly not uh, up until the point of um, it was shortly after that period that I, my life became a bit more radical. So what was it like at that time? Well, it was it was England, it was London, and um, it was a very, very unusual time. Um, first of all, you were expected to be completely sexually free. Most of us were blocked sexually, so it was this terrible tension between feeling that you were you know, really cool and you're having lots of relationships but actually didn't have any or <laughs> you got married like me and uh, um, but you had to sort of, you know you felt there was something wrong with you because you thought everyone else was having this free sort of life and, and it was a very confusing and difficult time because it it, um, you know, it seems very good on, uh, when you look back at sort of interesting times perhaps but it was, it was rather confusing living through that time but it was very, very exciting it was as though you could suddenly break out of norms. I think I came from a generation where I saw my life just being like a set of railway tracks. You're just going to follow those tracks down. You meet someone, a partner. You decide to get married. You get married. You um, get a house. You have a family. The family grow up. And you know, before you know where you are, you're a pensioner. And uh, um, it just seemed like that's what you did. So I was just following on these railway tracks. But when I met Banty in the FWBO, suddenly everything sort of came up for, for grabs, a whole new way of looking at things. So um, to give you some idea how important that time was in the founding of the FWBO, I remember asking Banty when I was about 10 years ago, 8 years ago, Banty wasn't very well. He was having a lot of sleep deprivation and I was for a couple of months looking spending quite a bit of time with him, looking after him. <coughs> and I had a few conversations with him, and we were talking about the um, founding of the Western Buddhist Order, and sort of, um, I think I was being a little bit, uh, you know, feeling a bit sad that things weren't quite like they used to be. And we were talking about, you know, when he founded the movement. And I remember him saying something along the lines that, it was the only time it would have been possible for him to start the FWBO in those conditions. That um, the conditions were just so right for the founding of a new Buddhist order in the late 60s, early 70s, that if he had missed it, it would have been impossible. So it was a rather sort of strange thing to say and, and uh, um, a strange thing to have happened. But it was like a window of opportunity opened up in history where... Um, something could come from the East uh, in the form of Sanger actually happened to be an Englishman from Tooting and be transplanted and for it to blossom and grow and then start spreading all around the world again. Um, <clears throat> and he was completely adamant about that, uh, about that, uh, like this was back in the early 2000s, he was I was talking to him in 2003, and he, you know, he really felt looking back it wouldn't have been possible. So it was that sort of, um, particular time and situation um, and I don't know if it could have happened in other towns or, or, or whatever but North London in the whole sort of Kentish town, Camden area of North London there was sort of a lot of 
alternative things going on. And people were just very, very open to trying out different new things. So I came along and made friends, um, seemed to get on very well with people, really liked people. And then I remember people moving into these squats. And I was born in a very working-class London family, and some of my family lived in sort of tenement buildings in Clerkenwell, which was very unpopular in those, when I was born. It wasn't uh, so wealthy as it is today. And they were, really, they were I think, what are technically called slums. And uh, so people were moving into these houses, which um, reminded me of where my grandmother lived. And I had this revulsion against um, these squats. But the guys that moved into them absolutely loved it. I used to hate going there, you know, because there would be rats and dirt. And, but uh, <clears throat> the guys that moved into them, and the girls, there was, I think there was a women's community, there was a mixed community, they just really loved it. And it was a sort of a whole new um, way of being. And, <clears throat> and it was really, really interesting, really good. However, it did have its downsides. So um, one of the things that the film doesn't show is like all groups of people, there were enormous conflicts. Um, one of the reasons why single-sex communities became quite popular is because it was a lot of young people and it was very sort of um, acceptable that um, you could be a bit free with your relationships. So someone would be sleeping with one person one day and then a couple of weeks later they were sleeping with another person, even some of those people in that film I won't mention any names, but uh, they were certainly swapping beds from time to time. And it creates enormous tensions, because just when you think you had a girlfriend, or the girlfriend thought she had a boyfriend, suddenly the boyfriend might be sleeping with another boyfriend, um, because it was all that time of sexual exploration of um, different cross-gender um, things. Uh, or they, you know, your partner was sleeping with someone else, and and it was like, hey man, it was all cool. <laughs> and um, it wasn't. It was very, very difficult and uh, very tempting. And there was a lot of tensions and a lot of difficulties there. But it seemed as though out of all this turmoil and um, confusion uh, that something new sort of began to grow and to, to take root. And when I came joined the order, it, it was very... Like Dharma Dinner said, you know, you sort of learnt what it was to be an older member by osmosis. No one really told you. But I never, ever had any doubts I did the right thing. And I've never, ever had doubts in the whole of my 35 or something years as an older member that I did the wrong thing then. I'm really very, very pleased that I became an older member. Sangha Akshita was an unusual character. He, he's got, had this long hair when I met him. You know that bubbly sort of coat thing that in one of the photographs. I, re I remember him wearing that. And uh, he's sort of, um, what they called, mutton, mutton chops, cyborgs. And uh, so when I walked into the first night at the Buddhist centre, Lokamitra said, hello, this is Bunty. And I thought Bunty was just another punter at the Buddhist centre. He didn't have his robes or anything. So I said, oh, yeah, hi, mate, how are you going? And just chatted away to him. <coughs> And then uh, a little while later, he was upstairs in his robes and he was suddenly the teacher. So it was um, lovely sort of getting to know him in a, without sort of projecting anything onto him. And um, he was just a very, very unusual man. It was very difficult to pin him down to say exactly what it was. It, it was a bit like he was in 
Well, looking back on it now, it's as though he was in disguise, you know, like a secret agent, you know, just had it on a mission, who was just sort of fitting in, and quite happy to be what he appears to be. He wasn't like exactly putting it on, but in another way, you don't really see the real man behind that. I remember on one occasion, just before I was ordained, I went to a puja in Norfolk, and just a few of us did this puja, and he did the sevenfold puja, he finished it, and then he just sat. We just sat, and he just sat. I think we sat there for about two hours, just waiting for him to ring the bell. And the, the atmosphere was absolutely amazing. First of all, it was like, first of all, thinking, when's he going to ring that bell? My legs are killing me. When's he going to ring that bell? Until you got to a point where you gave up thinking when he was going to ring that bell. And you just sort of sat there, and um, you just sat and it, that was the sort of sort of person he was. He just did things very, very spontaneously and uh, creatively. And I think that was a real sign of the times, which is something I've, you know, in many ways really, looking back at my age of 61, looking back on those times, uh, it's easy to say that they were good old times, but I don't necessarily think of them like that. But what I think was good about them is the fact that as, as there were a lot of young people involved in the, in the movement, and a lot of young people who were a bit leaderless, they had Sangrachta came along, organised things, went away, came back with a dream, and his dream was, let's start a Buddhist order. So what is that? I don't know. Let's just work it out as we go along. So it was a bit like there were no sort of definite guidelines, no rules, no regulations, no, nothing to conform to. There was the five precepts, which one was expected to start understanding and putting them into place. And you had to work out exactly what that meant in terms of who you slept with and whether you took drugs or not and things like that. There was all these things which we were trying to work out for ourselves without some elder saying, thou shalt not you know, drink alcohol if you're a an order member or something like that. So it was very, very exciting times. And I think in a way it's something I would really like to see to come back more and more to, to our centres, and particularly with the younger people. I think when you've reached a certain age, it's, um, you can be young at heart, but let's face it, you can't really be young. Um, you know, people like, we like our comfort too much and uh, we sort of, you know, we like our security and things. But when you're young, um, ideally... I mean, I don't know about the young people today, because it does worry me. I think they worry too much about security and things like that. But it's a bit like having that sense of um, anything could happen. You just don't know. It's, it's magic. You, know, you can sort of do things and put things in place and try out wacky ideas. And you learn from your mistakes. And you expose yourself. You have to be fearless that you're going to sort of like talk about the Dharma and some, you know, some people do, and they perhaps talk incorrectly, but you get corrected, and it's it's a great way of of, of being. It's being having that sort of um, courage and uh, um, enthusiasm to to be creative like that way, like that. Um, the great thing about Sangharakshita, he was in his forties at that time, and so he wasn't that old, but he was um, really encouraging us young people to just do things, to try out things. And uh, I'd really like to... Um, I know Andrew's organising a young people's group around the centre, but uh, I think it's something all of us who are a bit older could really encourage young people to do, is, you know, is be more creative and uh, more I imaginative in how to, to practice the Dharma. So I'd, I didn't really 
um, structure at all, because you might have gathered, uh, <laughs> before I saw the film. Because I, I have seen the film before, but I couldn't really um, remember um, exactly what was on there. And as I say, for, for my, it was a sort of a, um, a time for me where things were just beginning to grow a bit under the surface. And it was after this period that um, some big changes took place in my own life. So I, th I thought, I think maybe it'd be better if I just open the floor to any questions and sort of if there's any particular aspects of that time you're interested in, I could try to answer your questions. So was it when Sandra Extra came back from Cornwall that um, he <coughs> actually um, used the word order? Um... No, he used the word order in 1967 um, because he started the Western Buddhist order then. So he already had this idea of a new Buddhist order. It was when he went back to India in the mid-60s and he got this letter from Christmas Humphreys and the um, um, Buddhist society saying, you are not welcome back, don't bother coming back, we don't want you anymore, we're not going to support you. When he decided, well, you know what this means, he said that to his friend Terry, Terry Delamere, um, what this means is a new Buddhist order. So he he um, knew from mid sixties that that's what he was going to do, and he used he used the word the Western Buddhist order. But I think it was much more the movement, the friends of the Western Buddhist order, of like what that was going to be like was a bit more um, unknown. Um, there was no idea of communities, no idea of people living and practicing together, and so on. Last Sunday we had a sangha not this Sunday, Sunday before, we had a Sangha retreat at Castleton. And uh, one of the things I noticed on that, like four o'clock in the afternoon, when all the clearing up had been done, you think people were just dying to get off home. No one wanted to leave. And Vidya Marla said, like, we're off now. And everybody said, okay, bye, you know. And everyone was still there eating their yeah, apple, apple strudel that Pat, um, Patricia had done. But it, it reminded me of those early days. It reminded me, like, I was expecting someone to say, wouldn't this be a good way to live? And that's actually how the first community started. People went on retreats and they thought, wow, this is really great. You know, it's not always great when you, you know. But um, personally, I preferred the, the, um, the conflicts and the difficulties to um, the isolation of being alone. So that's the sort of thing that happened. It, you went on retreat, you thought this was great. Shouldn't we live like this all the time? And then people said, yeah, okay. And... In a way, when you're young, in that state, you haven't got much to lose. Of course, most of those people lost their education, but uh, um, you know, people like uh, um, myself, no, not myself, but quite a few people dropped out of university or just finished university and then didn't, never had a career. Like Subhuti's never had a, a career working um, in the world. He's always been a Buddhist and as an order member, Lokamitra, pretty much the same, and so on. That's right, yeah. It's, it was as though there was this sort of group of people who um, knew one another. And I tell you, some of the times the tension between... There was a, there was a, di there was a threesome that worked together at, uh, running the, the, the Buddhist centre just before Sukhavati was built. And the tension between those people was like... Um, you could almost see it in the air, like a black cloud, and people just really couldn't get on with one another. Um, but somehow this sort of tension was like caused a sort of creative <laughs> friction 
which resulted in Sukhavati being built. Um, eventually, um, Lokamitra moved out of that situation. Um, perhaps it's obvious he was one of them. And uh, <coughs> went off to India. And, and people did, you know, Banti said things to people like, oh, I think you should go to Glasgow and, like, go to me or to New Zealand. And people just did it. You know, it just it seemed like the most natural thing in the world to do. Um, not that you felt you were told to do it. It was just like, I suppose you felt a bit honoured that someone actually believed in you that much. Because um, you certainly didn't believe in yourself that much. It was a bit like someone said, well, you can run a centre, just go and do it. And, okay, I'll go and do it. Yeah, my wife got ordained a year after me, and uh, she became uh, an order member, still is an order member, and uh, she's, in fact, um, the Goody family produced um, three order members, and um, one Mitra, there's only one sibling who's not a Buddhist, um, who my daughters really admire. (laughs) 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 They're normal. (laughs) I can't remember people ever thinking like that. I think it was just that we... I suppose there was a tremendous optimism at that time in the world. On, on the one hand, I mean, you know, it's just to get things into context, right? Now you think there's global warming and, you know, it's a catastrophe, maybe recession, things like that. In the early 70s, no one expected to ever get to the year 2000 because it was a Cold War. And it was like... Um, no one expected for the world to ever to survive that long. So it was a sort of pessimistic, on, on the one hand, there was you know, America and Russia posed with all their thousands of atomic weapons ready to fire them at one another, and Europe was sort of in the middle of it. And there was this sort of sense, well, the end is nigh. But there was at the same time a, a strange optimism that actually you could do anything. It was as though... I don't know whether you had this feeling it didn't matter anyway because it was all going to end, but it was a bit like you you could try out anything, you could do anything. And um, so I don't think people felt that if whatever we did, it might all fall apart because it's a bit like, well, if it fell apart, you just do it, build it up again. And in a way, when things are small, there isn't that much to lose. You can just start again. It's when you've got big buildings and um, big organisations and systems and things like that when it all starts to fall to pieces it all gets a bit worrying because you um, you know don't know what's going to happen a friend of mine said to me the other day Daimala might not like to hear this but he said to me the other day that probably the best thing that could happen to the Buddhist centre is to sell it and (laughs) um, and then get everyone to build new centres around Manchester because it's sort of like having something I mean there are definitely advantages because that's why we sold it to having a big Buddhist centre, a big like big flagship. But sometimes when people are in smaller situations where everyone has to muck in and do things, it brings out the best in you. So instead of worrying about you and your weaknesses, and you, like Sabuti said, your psychological problems, you just get over yourself basically because 
if you want to be involved, you just have to do things. And um, it would be a bit like that. It would be a bit like the trustee saying, okay, the best thing for you is to sell the building, give you all, you know, little groups of you a couple of thousand pounds and just say, go on, go and build a Buddhist centre, you know, here and here and there. You could have Buddhist centres dotted all around. I must say, when I start thinking like that, I can feel this sort of excitement coming back. Oh, that'd be good. <laughs> Where shall I go in Manchester to start my Buddhist centre? And... Um, and so on. So it, it would be a, a bit like that. And as I say, there are advantages to having, you know, established things. People get much better training. People, um, we have lost a number of people on the way, but um, the number of people who have left the order is relatively few, um, given most people didn't know what they were letting themselves in for. I think one of the things I've noticed is that um, if I think. If I take a starting point that I'm old and uh, I'm not going to change my life very much, but I'm going to really encourage young people to change their life, it puts me back in touch with what it was like when I was young. And then before I know where I am, I'm starting to think like a young person again. So I think it's a bit like taking, taking account of the fact, well, okay, I'm, I can't pretend I'm, I'm a young person, but um, how do I sort of reignite that sort of spirit of being young, of being a bit wacky and a bit, you know, less sort of conservative and sort of, and so forth. How, how do I do it? Well, if I think, look around and I think, well, I'd like to encourage young people, I think, well, what would I encourage them to, to do? You start, ex- I, I start experiencing this sort of distance between um, me and them somehow. And I have to use my imagination to become like them. And I think in doing that, I become young again. So I don't think you, one needs to feel left out, but you will be left out if you feel, think like an old person. You know, if you think like an old person, like you've just got to put your feet up, take it easy, not do too much, retire, um, and so on, you'll become an old person who's putting their feet up, not doing too much, and retiring. Whereas if you think like you could be a young person, of course you can't run around with all the energy of a young person, particularly if you've got you know, sort of limitations your health and so on, but you can actually have a spirit of being young. And one of the things I noticed with Banti, he was he was never running around like a young person, but he was always encouraging um, creativity and youthfulness and vitality in, in people and, and, and bringing that alive. And I think when that comes about, it affects everyone. It's like having, if we had um, lots more young people around the centre us older people would, would um, perhaps feel a little bit uncomfortable sometimes, but if we opened ourselves to that sort of energy, it will ignite us and um, you know, sort of like make us feel more energetic ourselves, more enthusiastic about life and so on. So that's how I see things anyway. It's, I don't feel excluded. And uh, I've even join, asked to join the young people's group. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I, I think what I would do, you see, if I was thinking a bit more radically, I'd, I would start the old people who are young group. <laughs> because, you know, it's an, old, it's an old person's way of looking is to feel left out. So if, you've got, if you feel young in, at heart, you don't feel left out, you actually create your own sort of group. So that's, the sort of, so that's exactly the sort of challenges that were there in the early days. 
that no one, people felt victims and things like that. If they were felt like victims, they had to do something about it. No one was going to do it for you. And, um, and I think, in a way, that would be good if we could um, sort of um, develop that attitude in, in, in the Buddhist centre. That if, you, if you're not happy with something, it's not quite suiting you, create something new for yourself. You know, if you don't like this Buddhist gun centre, go and start another one somewhere. You know, it's, sort of, it's almost like if we thought like that, it would, it would probably release more energy in, in ourselves. That's my idea. Well, that is, I think that's always a danger that we bring in, you know, our views from the out, outside society where you see it happening all the time in, into the Sangha. And I think it's something we have to be really, um, we really have to guard against. I mean, it's not as though we want to de- deconstruct everything here because, as I say, there's a lot of value in it. But I think what we need to really value is creativity and uh, a, crea- a creative sort of urge to do things so there may be better and new ways of doing things and I think it, I'd like to see the Buddhist centre as being um, different from society one, one of the marks one of the great teachings of Sangrakshita is the teaching of the individual and uh, Sangrakshita talks about the individual as being not part of the mass of humanity so the individual and particularly the true individual the enlightened individual is set apart from the mass of humanity it's not that you don't interact with humanity, but actually you create something that is different from humanity. And what we need to be careful of in, in the centre is that we don't just become an extension of um, the Manchester, Manchester City in, in our centre, that actually when people come through the door, a lot of people notice it's a beautiful building inside, it's kind of got a calmness and so on. But it, um, in a way, I, way I, I would see the centre as being as growing into a place where, like, well, those, those Buddhists, they're pretty weird. You know, they, they really do things differently. And it's a bit like you come into that, and then the weird people come in, not, not the sort of necessarily the down-and-out type weird people, but the creative weird people come in and think, wow, this is cool, you know, and uh, you sort of feel there's a place in, in, in there for you. In a way, society hasn't changed at all. You know, when I was young, people used to worry about security, what they're going to do when they get old, you know, how bringing up a family and all those things. But um, when people came into the, the movement when they were younger, they stopped worrying about things like that. And when Vidyamara and I were in Sydney a few weeks ago, we met an older member who's a little bit older than me, but she's got this sort of... Um, she had this sort of youthfulness about her that I just found so refreshing. We were asking, well, what are you going to do if you have to move out of this place you're living in? Um, she's living in a beautiful house that uh, another old member built in the country outside of Sydney. And uh, she said, well, I don't know, just we might get asked to leave in three years. And she didn't seem at all bothered. And it was a bit like, oh, wow, you know. And she was completely generous. She was, had no money. She gave us money because she wanted us to have a, a room, an extra a few hours in the hotel room in Singapore for Vidyamala's back. And she was giving away a last bit of money. It was like, she didn't care. You know, it didn't matter. It, was, it wasn't sort of, um, what's the word, um, ir- irresponsible not caring. It was just like a confidence that something would turn up. And um, one of the things I've noticed going you know, through the 80s and the 90s is that a lot of younger people have just been sort of so conditioned into thinking you know, about security and what you're going to do when you get old and you know, what, what happens to you when you haven't got, when you're old and you've got no money 
we get ill usually and then you get put in the hospital and you die. It's sort of, you know, pretty straightforward. But <laughs> people worry about it, you know. Is it going to be the right conditions? I'd better save up for 20 years so that when I'm dying it's sort of comfortable. And uh, I think people, um, certainly who came out of the... the uh, the Buddhist, you know, at my time, didn't have... I think some of, them, some of us may have developed that view later on, but certainly at that age, you didn't worry. And by and large, people don't have to worry. It's sort of, um, you know, it, um, society will provide you with things. If society doesn't provide you with something, you create a new society that will. It's a bit like thinking like that, really, rather than thinking, oh, yeah, it sounds all very well, but... And then all the big buts come in, and nothing ever happens because there are all these buts all the time. It's a bit like saying, well, you know, I'm not going to bother about the buts. I'm just going to do something. And when I've lived my life, I think, wow, that was a life worth living. And, you know, if, if you're in poverty at the end of it, you still think that was a life worth living rather than sitting in your comfortable armchair in your, your centrally heated flat um, all alone thinking, oh, well, is this it? And <clears throat> so I think that was sort of just trying to communicate the sort of atmosphere and what it was like when I was young.